Showtime. Welcome to the show. Settle in and relax, kick back, get in your most comfy chair, get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. We've got a great show for you folks tonight. Mariana Van Zeller is here, and she has produced a brand new National Geographic documentary on the tunnels in Gaza. National Geographic's documentary series is called Explorer and is the longest-running documentary series on television. Mariana Van Zeller embeds in the world of the Godfather of Gaza to investigate the business of surviving an occupation. She explores the illicit and highly dangerous smuggling system for goods coming from Egypt and both the altruistic and dark sides of the trade. She seeks the perspective of the other side, where joint military forces take action, arguing that Gaza is importing suicide bombers as well as elite Hamas soldiers to join ISIS. Mariana Van Zeller is a multi-award winning journalist and co-founder of Muck Media. Mariana has quite literally reported from all corners of the globe. She has won the prestigious Livingston Award, a Peabody Award, a Television Academy Honor, and an Emmy nomination, nonetheless. Mariana's work has appeared on PBS, CNN, CBS, Channel 4 UK, of course, Current TV, and our very own CBC. She is fluent in Portuguese, English, Spanish, Italian, et Francais. I would very, very much like to welcome Mariana to the show for the first time and most definitely not the last time. Hi, how are you from California? How are the fires? Are you safe? I am safe. Uh, they were uh, this weekend actually quite close to us. Um, they were in Griffith Park, uh, yeah. which is about five miles from us. Uh, we've been under the warning of uh, the smoke all weekend, but we are thankfully all safe. Um, but our hearts go out to all the families here in California that have lost so much. And ours as well, there's no question. And the uh, loss of life and property is, and the devastation and trauma. Um, it is not just forestry, folks, as uh, the president says. There's more to it that's going on than that. Okay, let's start off. I want to start off with a wonderful quote from you, by the way. And this is a quote that you did all the way back before the video on March 14th, 2015, in a newspaper called TV Newser, and uh, Brian Flood interviewed you. And it goes, all conflicts are different, and yet the victims are always the same. That's really profound. They are people just like you and me, and whose lives are deeply affected by violence and war. And that's what this show is about. Brave and strong people who want to speak up and share their stories in order to start a conversation. One of the most important lessons I've learned from covering conflicts all around the world is that they always begin when communication fails. So this show is about getting the conversation started again and with some of the conflicts we cover in this series, we learn how peace was achieved, which gives hope for all others. Now, if I had to pick one conflict, I would say Israel-Palestine. The idea of reaching peace in the heart of the world's three major religions would reverberate far beyond the Holy Land. And that is a beautiful quote, my friend. Now, it just seems ironic that you had that quote three years before you made this wonderful documentary on the tunnels in Gaza. How much did that perspective from back then affect 
your direction that you took in covering the tunnels in Gaza. You know, Brent, it's so, so interesting. So that whole quote was about a show that I did called Breaking Borders. And it yeah. was a different show for a uh, travel channel uh, show. And um, we traveled all around the world covering basically conflict and going to conflict zones and getting communities from both sides or the enemies to sit down at a table and start a conversation. Yeah. And this idea that by breaking bread, you're able to realize that the other, this enemy, is actually much more similar to you than you'd initially think, which has been my goal in journalism um, since I started. I believe that one of um, my biggest challenge, but always, again, my biggest goal, is when I do these stories from faraway places, from people, places that are so far from us, people that seem initially to be so different from us. And But we need to bring back these stories and allow the viewers to care for these stories. Why should I care about these stories from so far away? But, you know, and, and, and that's always the challenge, um, is, is making sure that people realize, and by, by humanizing these stories, that actually these people might be far away, but they are much more similar to us than, than we know, and that we live in an interconnected world and that everything that happens far away has a reverberation effect here. And uh, so that was for a show that we did a long time, that I did a few years ago, but um, Interestingly enough, I also have lived in the Middle East. I lived in Syria when I was first starting as a freelance journalist. Um, and I've been to Israel and I traveled all around the Middle East. Um, I'd been to Palestine, to the West Bank, and I would heard so much about Gaza. And I've read throughout the years that's uh, the cover of newspapers constantly, the, what's happening in Gaza. And, and I've always been... Um, I've always wanted to go to Gaza. And uh, when uh, I started on Explorer, and it was one of the first assignments in the season, they called me and they said, hey, would you be up to going to Gaza? And it was an immediate yes. And they said, well, the story is a little dangerous because it's actually you're going into these uh, illegal tunnels that are constantly attacked. And uh, the idea is that you'll possibly get access to one, and we'd love to see it from the inside. Are you sure you're up to the task? And again, I didn't think twice, and it was an immediate yes, because uh, we know how fundamental Gaza is to the whole Israeli-Palestine conflict. Here is a little strip of land, um, very small, tiny little strip of land that's bordered by the, the sea, and then it's at the top. And on the one side, it has Israel. On the bottom, it has uh, Egypt. So it's bordered by the sea, and then Israel and Egypt. And it has suffered from uh, years and years of uh, blockades, um, where a lot of goods aren't allowed in, where Gazans aren't allowed it out. Um, and, you know, again, this, this is stuff that we hear in the news a lot, but not until you actually, you don't even have, you don't even have to enter Gaza. You have to go through, you, you go through the process of just crossing the border from Israel into Gaza. And that alone is one of the most surreal experiences that I've ever had. So here we have. A, Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. It's one of the most um, sort of uh, secure borders in the world. You have um, uh, surveillance cameras everywhere. Uh, there are drones with uh, or big, big balloons and drones with surveillance cameras everywhere from the Israeli side. There are these big block walls. There's uh, barbed wire. 
lots of fences. Um, and then there's this whole system. It's in this building, very secure building, militarized building that you, you use to go in through. And then on the other side, there's this gate that opens and suddenly you enter no man's land. And it's, um, I believe, a mile, um, a mile or two of no man's land uh, that takes you from Israel into Palestine or the, where the, the Gaza, which uh, is the, the beginning you go. So, so to get there, actually, because it is a mile or two long, you go through in this little mini cart golf, sort of like a golf cart with a, a Gazan, a Palestinian who is there and charges uh, $5 or something to take us. And we had, we needed one of these. You could walk, although it takes a long time, but we had all our gear with us. So we take one of these and you go on this little uh, corridor, essentially, that also is all fenced in, in this no man's land, in this little tiny corridor fenced in all the way. And suddenly you arrive in Gaza and initially you have the first checkpoint, which is the Palestinian Authority which rules the rest of the Palestinian territories. But then you have to go through the second checkpoint, which is the Hamas checkpoint, which is, it's Hamas is the actual official government, the, the group that controls Gaza. And these are all groups that are, have, are, that are fighting amongst themselves. You have Hamas that it doesn't like the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Authority is fighting against Hamas, and then you have Israel, and then you have the Egyptian government, and it's all so it's you're going through this, you know, sort of um, crazy map of conflicts that have been going on for decades just to under, enter this little strip of land by the sea. And then once you actually get there, uh, you know, again, you hear again and again the news about the, con the news about the conflict. Um, but to actually have a chance to meet families and to talk to kids and spend time and seeing how they live. And one beautiful thing that I had no idea happens in Gaza is that almost every, at sunset, almost every day, because there's so much beach, um, all the families head out at sunset to the beach. And you see the women are all wearing the hijab and covered, and uh, they're not, you know, because they're Muslim and they're covered and they are wearing long dresses and, uh, and and lots of kids, and you see just families just enjoying a normal day. I mean, it could be here in Santa Monica, California. It could be anywhere in the world where people are just trying to enjoy a normal life. And yet you go, you walk inland, and suddenly you see all these buildings that have been destroyed, that have been bombed, bullet-ridden everywhere. Um, and then you you talk, try to, you start talking to the people, and you realize how the conflict. Um, affects them. And one of the big ways that it affects them is that there's a lot of goods, um, goods that we take for granted um, that just don't make it into Gaza. Um, you know, cement being one of them. Um, one of the reasons why this is, and we then spoke to the Israeli military and spent time with the Israeli government too, to try to understand, as journalists, you also always have to try to understand both sides and to try to understand why, why something like cement would be barred from entering. And their point is that for many years there was cement going in uh, through uh, Israel and then through Egypt and into Gaza, but that they were having a problem because they started building these tunnels in Gaza, these smuggling tunnels. The Gazans say that the tunnels 
are just to bring in goods such as medicine and food that they need. But the Israeli government says that they're also building tunnels to Israel and that they're smuggling and sending um, suicide bombers and that they have, in fact, discovered suicide. There have been suicide bombers that have gone through these tunnels and killed Israelis. And, and so they showed us the proof of that as well. Um, so there's always these two, you know, these these. Um, sides to every story. But the fact is that there are goods that don't make into Gaza and that people need those goods and that the only way that they have found to get these goods into the territory has been through these smuggling tunnels with Egypt. And so after several days there, uh, we spent a lot of time with a man who called himself a, uh, uh, a tunnel boss. And he didn't want to reveal his identity, but uh, we were able to film him. We just couldn't show his face. Um, and he said, even though I'm risking my life by showing you guys this and allowing you guys to see my life, um, I think it's important. And the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to understand what it's like to live in Gaza. And the way he put it is that um, it's hell. It really is hell. Um, and uh, did you lose me there? You're still with me, yeah? I'm still with you. The, the frown on my face is because I don't like to hear about people suffering. Just some context, folks. Picture this as Gaza. This is Israel over here, the Mediterranean seas here. There are two entry points, one at the top and one at the bottom. The one at the bottom is Rafa, and that is the one that borders on Egypt. Now, just a little bit of context again. Egypt owned all of Gaza up until the 1967 war when Israel conquered it, for lack of a better term, and took over occupation of it. Now, the border that we're talking about uh, that brings a lot of the goods in, there's a bunch of tunnels that come from, from Egypt into the bottom of Gaza. There are more tunnels that come from Gaza into Israel. Those are more designed to bring Hamas terrorists into the country, where they've smuggled out soldiers, they've killed soldiers, etc. The ones at the bottom are significantly different because they are bringing in Household things, like Mariana said, um, very common things that we, like fridges, for example, they would bring in sheep. Um, we, you know, we laugh because there's, we just go to the Costco or wherever to pick up our sheep or whatever. And uh, no, they have to bring all these things in. Uh, so this is where these tunnels are built in the bottom between Egypt and into uh, Gaza to bring these things through. Now, of course, there are other things, nefarious things, being smuggled in at, at the same time. Now, the, you said these these um, tunnel builders were afraid, as I put down my Gaza map. <laughs> they were afraid. I, they're not only afraid from the Israelis from an airstrike that would collapse the tunnel, but there are, are they afraid from Hamas as well? You know, it is interesting because if you talk about the Israeli government or even the Egyptian government, they are very fast to criticize. But if we talk about Hamas... Um, they are not. They're, uh, they, they don't, it doesn't feel like they're free to speak in many ways. Um, you know, this is a, um, I, I, the feeling that I got there was that um, Hamas is everywhere and criticizing Hamas can be dangerous. And so you, we never heard, even though I asked several times, uh, you know, the, the, the most we've heard was when I was spending time with the, the, tunnel boss. Um, it was interesting to find out that he said uh, tunnel boss. Um, it was in that Hamas, they, he actually pays Hamas an X percentage, an X amount of all the money he makes and that that is mandatory. 
Um, and yet, again, he was quick to criticize the Israeli government. He was quick to criticize the Egyptian government. Um, but you could tell that he wasn't comfortable criticizing the Hamas um, government, uh, which was interesting. But, uh, but again, he said that the reason why he was risking his life by talking to even talking to us and showing us what he does was because he thought it was important to tell his story and why he's doing it. And as it is with every story, which is it, sort of frustrating, but then in the end it was good, is that uh, as journalists, you go out, you set out to tell these stories. And a lot of times it's these impossible places that you're supposed to get access to. And you you go there and you have to get access to this place. In this case, it was a tunnel. We really wanted them to see what these tunnels look like. We had a whole story about tunnels. We'd have to visit at least one tunnel um, to be able to, 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 to see what it was like. And uh, by we spent a week, more or less, in Gaza. And it wasn't until towards the end, the last two days, that we finally got the call from him. And he said, OK, it is safe to go. We can go now. Uh, but you aren't we wouldn't be, we couldn't film anything until we actually entered um, the shaft that took us down to the tunnel. And that was also fascinating. So here I am, finally get the call. I'm incredibly excited. Uh, they tell us that we have to hide the camera. So we hide really fast, hide the camera, and then um, take us to this place. And it's, it's essentially this tent uh, out in the middle of a residential area. Um, but there's just this tent. And you enter this tent, and inside there's this shaft. There's two or three men there, other men, and then there's a tunnel boss that's coming with us. And there's a little electrical generator, tiny little thing that is connected to this shaft. And the shaft, it, shaft is just two uh, pieces of wood stuck together or three. It's sort of a little thing made of wood. Very all, um, you know, I could, I could have done that in half a day, built that little makeshift it, shaft. In terms of circumference, is it more like a, a small well? Is it enough to get a big guy yeah. like me down there, would it be? It, it's a small well. So we were three. It was myself, the tunnel boss, and uh, the, the cameraman, uh, this amazing guy called Omar, who's way braver than I am. And he was filming uh, the cam. He was so he the camera. He wasn't able to hold the camera straight because there wasn't enough space. So he had to film. He had to take out the camera and film me looking down. The camera was between us and we were almost hugging each other because it's so small. And so as we're going down, um, I finally the camera finally came out and we were able to start filming and I'm explaining to the camera what's happening and where we're going. And I finally realized I hadn't actually asked how deep it was. Um, and then I did, and I preferred maybe not to have known because the, the, the answer was we were, it was 70 meters. So almost 200 feet down, uh, which is crazy, uh, which is very, very far down. So we took us, uh, several minutes. Now, Darren is cool with it. Darren is your husband, by the way, folks. They work together. Yeah. Darren, why didn't you send him first? <laughs> I wish, I actually wish, I know. I wish Darren, Darren wasn't there, unfortunately. I, this was one trip I did not do with Darren, with my husband. Uh, but Darren would probably not let me go. But <laughs> I did, that. this one was with uh, Omar, who's a, a cameraman who's amazing. And so it was just me, Omar, and the, and the tunnel boss. And yeah, and it took us several minutes. And finally, we get down. And I've covered tunnels. I've been um, in this here in this, the border between the US and Mexico. I've covered the drug war in Mexico for many years. 
and have actually visited the, the infamous El Chapo, uh, Sinaloa tunnels that cross here the border, a lot of them here in, in, in California and, uh, and in Texas. And I've seen them in Arizona as well. And I've seen them and they are, those are million dollar tunnels. They have cement, they're uh, secured, they have air conditioner, they have air conditioning, they have lights. Uh, it's, it's like the luxury um, uh, tunnel compared to this. And suddenly this one, it's basically just dirt. It's almost dug out in the dirt. Um, and then they had this little bucket with another generator at the bottom and this bucket that they clicked the button on the generator and the, bu the bucket would go back and forth between Egypt. So this one was not one of the tunnels that is bringing the big items because I know that uh, cars have been smuggled in and much larger uh, fridges and all that. This was for smaller um, for smaller items. He, we didn't see any of the items that he was bringing in. He said it was too dangerous to show us the items coming in. Uh, we were only allowed to be there for 10 minutes. Again, it is incredibly risky. Uh, both the Israeli and the Egyptian government uh, are, you know, often uh, attack and destroy these tunnels. A lot of the people that have worked in tunnels have died. And so we, he told us that it wasn't safe for us to be there for more than 10 minutes. But he told us that the goods that he was bringing was uh, medicine, food, which are necessary for survival. Uh, although, again, we couldn't make we are we're not sure if that is the case or not. This is what he told us. We didn't see it. And then one of the goods that we did see, which was uh, lights and uh, goods to make uh, party party items. Um, and the, the reason why we were interested in following the party items when we found out was because we wanted to then see, uh, we then went to a wedding the next day in Gaza and, and saw some of these items actually being used in, in a, a wedding. And one of the beautiful things that we heard somebody there tell us is like, it was that it's not, um, you know, it's important obviously to have medicine and food, but it's also incredibly important to have a semblance of a normal life. It's almost as important to be able to dance. It's almost as important to be able to celebrate. Um, and because without that, without any sort source of happiness, what's the reason to live? And so that was that was a beautiful moment. Let me just interrupt for a second, folks. I just want to tell you, too, it's 60 percent, 60 percent unemployment rate in Gaza. Now, um, the younger generation, there's a brand new generation that's coming up, and you think of that. They've got no employment. What else are they going to do? And then Hamas, who is the elected government, although a terrorist government, there's no question. And I suspect you had to cover the whole time you were there, wearing hijab, folks, is what I mean, uh, just to stay, stay safe. Um, what what is available for these guys except to go either join Hamas like uh, somebody would join a, a biker gang? I, I covered the biker gangs extensively, and it seems like it's the same scenario played out, perhaps on a larger scale. Um, there literally is no work for these folks, so they end up making tunnels because it's the only way they can make money, even though they have to give a kickback to Hamas. By the way, which actually gives out um, permits. You have to get a permit from Hamas to, to make these tunnels. What are some alternatives? Is there any alternatives? What are the background of these folks? You know, it's really interesting, actually. One of the things that we saw, we arrived, and usually we work a lot with what we call these local producers when we go and do these stories in these faraway places. We call them fixers. And the, these local journalists that know much more about the situation than we do and that really sort of make us look like heroes when they are the real heroes. Um, because they are, a lot of times, we're telling these dangerous stories and then we leave and they're the ones who have to stay there and many times sort of 
um, you know, hope deal with uh, whatever comes after we return. Um, so it's it's always sort of a, a, a sensitive issue. But in in this case, we got there and we had our fixer, and then we had another person because our fixer didn't speak English so well. Although I thought he spoke English great, he had another person helping him who was also uh, being paid. And then there were four or five more people in that crew. And it, it's all this idea that because there are no jobs, uh, there was an opportunity here for a job. We were paying not, you know, we paid a certain amount, X amount, and then they divided. And suddenly, instead of having one or two people in the local crew, we had five or six people. And a lot of these guys, one of the guys, for example, was uh, had lived in the United States, spoke English uh, fluently. Uh, was really smart, um, had worked uh, in the TV business before. He had been the host of a, a reality show. Uh, fascinating person. And uh, again, can't find a job. Um, he, again, speaks uh, two or three languages fluently. And uh, and he was acting as our, our bodyguard, sort of. He was always with us and making sure that we were okay. And as again, it's just there are no jobs, so any little thing that they can find, um, you know, they grab onto because there are no jobs. In the early days, when um, Israel took over the occupation, they allowed Palestinians to come into Israel, and many were craftsmen, and they would. Uh, get work in that sense. Is there any way that Egypt could open up the Rafa border, they've shut it down, and allow Palestinians to come into Egypt, perhaps, for some work? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Rafa border was open um, until uh, a, a few years ago, um, and then it was closed because the Egyptian government was afraid that uh, the Palestinians that would come in uh, would help uh, their, what they, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is what they perceive as their uh, terrorist organization, um, or at least the Egyptian government does. Um, although they had been, uh, you know, elected, um, legitimately elected in the previous administration in Egypt. So the, the whole politics of the, the region, I mean, you'd have to spend years and years uh, immersed in it to really understand it. It's all incredibly complicated. But and the you fact were in that the Syria on top of it, so you really know. I was. Yeah. And I lived in Syria as well before yeah. the war. Um, yes, and also there, the whole geopolitics of it all is is crazy. But um, but they've closed the Rafa border, uh, which has only made situ the situation much worse and much harder for the Gazan people. Um, you know, and and what's really sad is, and I, I stand by my quote about. The conflicts might change, but the victims are always the same. And here you go again. It's, you know, the people in power are not the ones that are being affected. The people that are making these decisions and are closing these borders, um, you know, are comfortably sitting in their, you know, air conditioned spaces in these nice chairs. And while those being affected are the, you know, the families that we spoke to, the kids, uh, we were so well received and so welcomed everywhere we went. And literally, kids would jump out and come at us and start uh, saying the few English words they knew. And there's just so much joy, um, which was so incredibly surprising because, again, you are surrounded by houses and buildings that have been destroyed. There's uh, you know, even though there wasn't an active conflict when we were there, there's signs of conflict all around you. Everybody knows somebody who has been killed. Uh, everybody knows somebody who's lost their home. Um, and yet there's immense joy. 
and we we'd step out because there aren't many tourists and there aren't a lot of foreigners. Uh, as soon as we step out of the car, they knew that we weren't local. So we were just surrounded by kids, um, you know, wanting to say hi, wanting to hug us, wanted to learn English. They'd ask us words, how to say certain words. And then by, by women, too, especially me. And we had I had a, another producer, a female producer with me as well who uh, spoke a little bit of Arabic as well. And the two of us were constantly invited into homes to drink tea and to spend time and to sit down. And we did. And it was beautiful because although we didn't speak very much uh, Arabic, just a tiny little bit, sometimes we would just sit there in silence and, uh, and, and, and be offered tea. And then we were like, oh, there's no more words that I know how to speak and they don't speak English, but we'll just sit here in silence and enjoy this moment with them. And then we'd excuse ourselves and say, thank you. Thank you so much and leave. But there's just so much joy and, and hospitality um, in the Middle East in general, I would say. Was there a moment that brought you to tears and uh, how do you deal because this show is I'll tell you this show is syndicated through all the university networks here in Canada and a lot in the states and of course it's on YouTube and it's on television here in Canada so it's a lot of youth that watch this show and I always do this show specifically just to inspire them it's a volunteer show specifically when you're in that emotional state is does that how do you step back from that enough to be able to focus on the narrative of the story. Yet I'm thinking that is probably part of what makes you you and your storytelling as well. How do you approach that balance between the two? Uh, you know, I, I try not to let it get to me uh, very much, although there are a lot of moments where I completely collapse in, uh, in, in tears and emotionally. Um, but. Uh, I think the important thing is to realize that, uh, you know, the story is not about me. <laughs> My The best thing that I can be, be, do for the, the, the story and for the people that I'm meeting is be, to be sure that I'm telling the best story that I can. And, uh, you know, and a lot of times it involves, um, you know, going to places that I prefer not to go, that my has husband definitely prefers I wouldn't go. Uh, uh, you know, talking to people that initially I think would, you know, what what's really interesting in this, the, the, the business that we are in is that a lot of times you go into a story thinking, okay, I know this, I know this, I know who's the bad guy, I know who the good guy is, and uh, I know exactly the story I want to tell. And when you get there, it actually is nothing like what you expected. And a lot of times the people that this preconceived idea of this enemy and these people that are bad, when you actually have a chance to sit down with them and hear them and 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 listen to them with an open heart, you realize that that there is a reason why they're doing the things that they do a lot more times than um, it, it's just not so black and white. There's a lot more gray areas in the world. And the, the way I like to approach the stories that I do are, is always with empathy. That's my number one word that I use again and again and that I remind myself again and again, empathy. Even if you're talking to somebody that you completely disagree with, um, you have to approach it always with empathy and try to understand. That doesn't mean that you're not also able to then turn it around and ask difficult and serious questions and ask for accountability from people that need uh, to be asked about accountability. But it, but it means that you're, you, you choose to see the world first through empathy, empathy 
Um, and, and that's the way that you try to understand the world. Um, and that's the way that I do my reporting. A lot of people will say, why doesn't Israel just shut down those terror tunnels? I know they're trying to do that between the Gaza Strip and Israel proper. But are they turning a blind eye? I'll give you an example. Um, during the Second World War, there was something called the Enigma machine, folks. And that was a code machine that the Germans had to tell the U-boats where the Allies were in the middle of the Atlantic when they were transporting things over to Great Britain. And once they broke the code at Bletchley Park in London, they stayed mum on a lot of the uh, traffic that they were getting. In other words, they allowed certain attacks to continue so that the Nazis didn't know they, they had broken the code. Otherwise, the Nazis would have changed the code and that would have been even worse. Does Israel kind of turn a blind eye because of that? Because they're, they're, most of the traffic coming through those tunnels between Gaza and Egypt are mostly, um, what would I call them, consumer goods rather than terrorist uh, activities? You know, I'm not sure that's a good question. They do know that there's a lot of tunnels that still exist. Uh, their goal, the Israeli government, from what they told us, is to make sure that they are able to destroy all the tunnels that are coming from Gaza uh, to Israel, because those are the ones that are really, they believe, threatening uh, their sovereignty and their their, their people. Um, and they're currently actually building a 500 and something billion dollar wall that they showed as they were just starting this project that goes underground, uh, you know, several hundreds feet. And that is sort of electric, they explain the whole, it is a, a sort of very high tech operation that they're building where it's also electrified and anything that happens close to the wall, they get notified. So if the, you're trying to build, to, to uh, you know, dig a hole through the wall, they'll, they'll be notified and they'll know. Um, so they're spending all these billions of dollars because they do believe that this is, that it's what the, these tunnels are incredibly risky and, and threaten their existence and threaten their people. And they have in the past. Um, I'm not sure how much uh, they are actually in communication with the Egyptian government about what's happening in the Southern border. Um, but the Egyptian government certainly doesn't want those, those, tunnels there either. And they've also been destroying these tunnels. And all the ones that we visited in the area that we were had been, in fact, destroyed by the Egyptian government, not the Israeli government. As an extension to that question, then I, I'm presuming you left Gaza through Israel and went to Tel Aviv and flew. OK. Um, did they question you at all? Did you have to sit down with officials and say, where was this tunnel? What did you do? What were your activities? What, your, what were your movements? Anything along those lines at all? They didn't question us, but they went through every single, they go through, and I think they do this with everyone, they went through every single piece of equipment, and I've been all over the world with camera equipment, and I had never been searched that way before in my entire life. It was, they opened up the cameras, every single piece, so the process of getting from uh, Palestine, uh, from Gaza back into uh, Israel took us, what could have, should have took, or could have taken us, I don't know, 30 minutes, 20 minutes was, I believe, three or four hours. And every single piece of our equipment, every single bag, uh, all my clothes, everything is open and searched. And, and they're, they want to make sure that there's no explosive devices, no weapons, that there's nothing in there. I'm not sure what else they were looking for, but um, it, it was, you know, they, they searched everything to make sure. And that was the first 
Oh, that's fine. I've only got a few more questions for you. You were right there. You were right on the spot. If you had a chance to speak, I'm going to ask you to. I'm going to ask you what you would say to the leader of Hamas. I would. I was going to ask you if you sat down right next to Netanyahu, and also the president of the United States, Donald Trump. What would you just say to those guys? Well, first of all, I'd say that they should definitely sit down and talk because that's the beginning. Communication. It's it's interesting in a conflict like Israel and Palestine um, that has been going on for so many years, uh, so many decades that. A lot of times you think, oh, this is an old conflict. Uh, for sure, there's, they're, they're in constant communication and everything has been tried. But just, you know, the, the, the sitting down and actually communicating is the start to everything. Um, so I, I think just, and, and we, I experienced that. I had the enormous privilege of being part of that show, Breaking Borders, where we went around the world and sat down. And one of the most amazing episodes that we did in that uh, case was actually the first episode, which was all in Israel. And we went to a settlement, a Jewish settlement, and had a Palestinian come with us uh, with to, to a Jewish settlement and sit down and have dinner with us. And it was the first time ever that this Palestinian who lives in Jerusalem, a lot, his neighbors are a lot of them Jewish. It was the first time ever that he'd enter a settlement, entered a settlement and eaten food from a settler, which he had sworn he would never do. And it was the first time ever that the Jewish settlers, even though they're surrounded by Palestinians, allowed, uh, sat down and broke bread with a, a, a Palestinian. The first time in their lives. And we're talking about people who were, you know, families who were 40 and 50 and 60 years old. And we, and, and so we had a, a sort of handful of Israelis and Jewish, uh, settlers and then we have a handful of Palestinians and everybody came together and it was being hosted at the settler family's house and then the, fa the the kids he had three or four kids his whole family joined the table and initially it was heated and we were talking politics and they were pointing fingers at each other and in the end I was in tears because uh, the most unexpected thing happened which was that in the end they, they yelled they uh, said how much they hated each other, all that happened. And in the end, I kid you not, they stood up and they hugged each other. And they said, we have so much more in common than we have that, that separates, which was the whole point of the show. That's what we were trying to accomplish. And that's what I try to accomplish with my journalism always. So actually to see that, it seems very simplistic, but, but it was there and it happened and I was a witness to it. And they shared phone numbers and they said, we should do this more often. And yes, we have so many disagreements, but yet we share this history together. The food is very similar between the Israelis and the, uh, the Palestinians, you know, the territory, their neighbors. Um, and so it was, it was a really beautiful moment and one that I will never forget. Spectacular, absolutely spectacular. Does the West have a role to play in any of this? I I believe so. Uh, you know, it took uh, it it took us a lot of time as it takes people from the outside um, to sort of bring parties together. You know, it's easier. It's why couples go to couples therapy. Uh, 
you know, it, it helps to have somebody from the outside, hopefully somebody that at least when they come to the table, they don't have any vested interest or they're not showing that they have any vested interest, right? Um, and where they come and they can show each side, you know, that there is a way to bridge that that gap. Um, so I would love to, to believe that that is still um, our position in the West and that that is still our goal in the West, and that's the, that that is still the goal of our politicians in the West, whether it's in Europe or which is my my where I grew up in, in Portugal in Europe and my new beautiful um, country that has done, which is the United States, which has done so much good, so much bad as well, but has also done so much good. So I'm, I'm staying hopeful. From your lips to God's ears, as they say, for the fans of the show, they'll know that this is a repeating mantra for me. Communication, 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 talk. Ted Sorensen was a good friend of mine. He was JFK's speechwriter. He's the guy that wrote the letter to Khrushchev to get him back, to get back down. And he said, Brent, what are you going to do? Are you going to talk with your enemy or just go and wipe him out right away? He said, my idea is to talk first. And I, you've just said that. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Thank you for that. Okay, I'm not going to keep you any longer. Well, last question, and this is a question I ask everybody. You're literally speaking to every Canadian student across the country from coast to coast to coast. We have three coasts in Canada, as well as the United States, as well as right around the world, because it's on YouTube as well and on television here in Ontario. What would you say to them? I would say uh, don't give up. <laughs> Perseverance is for me the most important word uh, alongside empathy. I've given two of the mo my most uh, important words. But perseverance is a very important one for me because I grew up in Portugal and I always wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to come to the United States and practice journalism because I knew that the kind of journalism that I wanted to do, um, I would be able to do it here uh, and I wouldn't be able to do it in my country that doesn't have um, the same situation as we have here. And so I applied to go to Columbia University's journalism school. Uh, which was my dream come true uh, as soon as I graduated from university in Portugal and I didn't get in. Um, and then I was very sad, but I thought I'm going to apply a second year and I did. And I didn't get in the second year either. And the third year, uh, even though they completely discouraged international students to from coming to the university, um, I uh, got on a plane and I flew to New York and I knocked on the dean's door and I said, my name is Mariana. I'm from Portugal. It's my dream to come and study here. I want to be a journalist and I want to practice journalism here in America. What do I have to do? So I've applied two years and I haven't gotten in. And he sat me down. He was a wonderful human being. Um, we need a lot more people and mentors like him in the world. Uh, but he sat me down. We had a conversation of about one hour about journalism. And that year I got in. So it's perseverance, is not giving up on your dreams. And now here I am uh, hosting this incredible show on National Geographic Channel, uh, which has always been a dream for me. And, um, you know, not give up. And changing the world. Oh, I wish. Absolutely <laughs> changing the world. Knowledge, from knowledge we make decisions. And from proper knowledge and fair knowledge, we can make the right decisions. And I think that's what you're bringing to the world. Congratulations Thanks. to you. Thank you to Darren for allowing Thanks. you to take these journeys. And I know you have a young son as well. And thank you to him as well. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Again, folks, the show is called Explorer. And the tunnels in Gaza, the godfather of Gaza, is the episode that Mariana Van Zeller has produced. And she's been our guest tonight. 
And I want to thank you once more. Thanks again for coming on the show tonight. Thank you, Brent. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm Brent Holland from The Brent Holland Show. Thanks for joining us. Take care of each other out there. See you next time.